It's great to be here, and um, it's, it's a little bit of a disjuncture for me to kind of return to this project, because when Corinne contacted me about it, she said, oh, we're doing this series on embodied methodology, and I was going, oh, you know, should I do this? Because actually most of what I do now in population health um, is very much about sort of um, health questionnaire development quality of life research, um, which often is not very embodied, um, but it's, this is nice to give me pause and think again about some of the work that I've done earlier while I was in this department, and basically where I want to take you today is just to present some of this work um, that I did with colleagues in the classics department through TORCH, the Oxford um, Research Centre of Humanities, which was an initiative that started about five years ago, and as far as I can tell, it's still going strong. Um, so I'm going to revisit some work that started about five years ago. This project ran for about three years. Um, I was very actively involved with it for about the first 18 months to two years of that, at which point I shifted up the hill and switched roles. So it kind of took on a life of its own and kept going um, after I was actively involved with it. So I'm going to be presenting some of the earliest work that came out of this project. Um, but just to think about how embodiment and embodied methodologies could be used potentially in creative ways to think about obesity, eating disorders, different body sizes. Um, the title, How Could It Be Otherwise, um, I don't know, you know what struck me as the inspiration on this one, but um, around the same time that I was doing this project, I went to a, a workshop, I think, it was, um, I think it was by the way it began from the William Forsyth Company at Roehampton, and that was a prompt that they used in improvisation. So we'd be, you know, the, it was quite an unstructured improvisation, and you know, they might give us a prompt, say, you know, think about can you use a different part of your body to lead, or can you cut the space in a different way? And then occasionally they would say, how could it be otherwise? And it was just this very general prompt, thinking about what's another perspective on this. And so they weren't trying to be too prescriptive in how the improvisation went, but just every now and then would prompt, you know, think about this from a different perspective, think about this from another angle. So I thought that was, you know, kind of a nice framing for embodied methodology, because what I'm going to present today, um, you know, we didn't really have a clear idea of what it might produce. Um, so a lot of it was, let's just give this a try and see if it produces anything useful for us. But as I say, it emerged out of, um, it was one of the first projects actually funded by Torch. And so this was set up to try and foster collaboration between the humanities and social sciences divisions within the university. So this had just been funded and they put out a call for initial networks and projects. And I was contacted out of the blue by my soon-to-become colleague, Helen Slaney, um, who was a PhD classicist um, starting a postdoc fellowship. And she said, yeah, um, I do ancient performance. And I'm trying to think about if there's an interesting way we can you know, think about that as a performance instead of you know, what we normally do is looking at it very much from the text and the visual representations. Um, so she said, you know, I'd like to you know, work with you, I understand you're an anthropologist who does dance, so is there anything that we could do to try and approach this ancient dance form from a more performative perspective? So that was the prompt, um, and so what we were trying to do was think about engaging with text from the past and trying to shift the perspective on how you would engage with that and how to you know, think about what are the resonances and disjunctures with the present and thinking about the past. And so the way and we were saying, well, what's this project all about? And so she said, she said, is it radical classics? Because, you know, in classics, we, um, we, we pretty much just deal with text. And so you know, the idea of getting people involved and doing something performative is going to, you know, probably 
not sit well with some of my colleagues who are thinking, you know, what on earth are you doing? And I was saying, well, from my point of view, is this kind of experimental field work because the sort of work that we would normally do as anthropologists would be very long term, but also, you know, be trying to capture more of the mundane sort of daily practices, whereas we were setting up workshops that were very much you know, constructed. So we weren't quite sure what to call this, um, but thought that it was something probably pushing the boundaries from both disciplinary perspectives. And the focus um, was this particular form, Trigoidea saltata, I hope I'm still pronouncing that correctly, I'll tell it a lot better than I did, um, which is a form that was around in about the fourth and fifth century. And um, this was a, form, a performance form that, from what they can tell, was something where the performers, it was done by a single performer who would have to basically carry the narrative and the theme and the feeling of whatever was being performed you know, on their own. And so from what the classicists have been able to gather, the people who were um, the performers of the so they would have been you know, mid-century celebrities. You know, the, the people who did this well would have been considered virtuoso artists because they had to be able to transform themselves into any number of characters and, and to be able to convey not only narrative, they had to be able to convey emotional states and context and more abstract kind of concepts. Um, so this is something that you know very much was a, um, a, a sort of solo performance art, but would have been supported by um, by musical accompaniments. So there would have been a libretto. Uh, there would have been um, vocals that would have been potentially telling the story, providing the cues as to the content of the performance, and. Uh, so the, the hypothesis that we were working from is, well, can we know something different about it if we try to engage with this ancient form by doing it, by trying to reenact it in some way, rather than what's known about it at this stage, which is pieced together from texts, vases, um, archaeology, other visual representations that have been pieced together from different sources. And we noted up front that, you know, we thought, okay, if we're doing something embodied, it almost immediately, you know, puts this kind of the visual against the spoken and performative. And so we were very aware that that tension might seem to be there from the beginning, and we weren't quite sure how that was going to play out. And we didn't think about it too much at this stage, um, but something that we concluded at the end of, of the early phase was actually that distinction wasn't very meaningful, um, and so some of the examples that I'm going to give of, of the embodied methodology, and that, you know, of course, it's ridiculous to try and separate out the verbal from the non-verbal, because actually what we did involved a lot of discourse and a lot of negotiation about what we thought we were trying to do, and I'll, um, I'll pull up some short video clips in a moment to see you know, how that played out and what we actually did. Okay, so the process behind it, um, what was really interesting about doing this collaboration with classicists is that you know, immediately I said, okay, well, um, you know, we're going to have to think about ethics. <laughs> and, uh, and Helen and our other colleagues said, hmm? <laughs> I said, yes, right, you don't tend to do research where you're working with people, right? We, we've got human subjects here, human participants, so we need to think about how we're setting this up and you know, what we tell people about it in advance and you know, what we're asking them to contribute. Um, so that was actually a nice kind of you know, as a cross-disciplinary engagement, just a you know, very basic thing about thinking about, you know, what are some of the logistics of setting up a new project when you're both doing something that's not quite the standard sort of work in your own field. 
Um, thankfully, the ethics process was pretty straightforward because we weren't doing anything particularly controversial. We weren't looking at a health issue or another sensitive topic. So our ethics could get through the very straightforward kind of low-risk curic university ethics. So actually, all of that happened very quickly. I just wanted to flag that because if you're thinking more about embodied work in relation to health, eating disorders, particularly obesity, um, it's something that you want to be thinking about sooner rather than later because now I work in the land of NHS ethics, which um, is a very long process potentially, and the longest part very often is actually getting the university on board. Um, so if you're going down in kind of health services recruitment route, um, you just do need to be aware that there's a lot more steps involved, and so you, you know, might want to think about that early on and think about, well, if I recruit through charities, perhaps I can dodge the NHS ethics route, but if you so much as go anywhere near a clinic and ask for you know, people to identify patients with a particular eating disorder, then you're going down a much lengthier preparation route. So that's just something to be aware of, even at the early stages of thinking about more innovative projects. So what did we do? Um, well, for the first set of workshops, we ran across four sessions, and these were run in the summer of 2013. And we invited participants who either had expertise in dance or in classics. And so they were sent out through um, basically university and professional networks just looking for interested people. Uh, so the recruitment was fairly straightforward, and we had a good number of people respond enthusiastically, so that wasn't really a problem. And how we set the workshops up um, was that they'd been provided with some information packs in advance, which had a little bit of a summary of what the ancient performance form was all about, but not too much. And then they also had a pack of information that included things like um, terminology that had been identified from texts around that time that had been translated. Um, so it gave a suggestion of what the movement and the choreography might have looked like or might have emphasized. So there's a list of choreographic terms. There was also a selection of translated text from Ovid's Metamorphoses, um, which was thought to be one of the main sources that might have inspired this form, and so various bits of it may have been performed um, as Gregorius Salzada at that time. Um, so there was an excerpt from one small section of Metamorphoses, and that was going to be the kind of content prompt for this session. They were given that in advance, so they had, or rather, I think the classicists were given that in advance because it was assumed that they had to be a little bit more of the kind of uh, content and historical experts. I can't actually remember that the dancers did get it in advance. But we started off the sessions um, with Helen, who is there, so Helen, Sophie, myself, so we were three that were kind of leading these workshops. So Helen gave a briefing at the start of the workshop um, just to give a bit of information about the form and about the context. Um, within that, the participants were also introduced to the idea that this would have been a form that almost certainly would have involved masks, and from what you could see from visual representations, it would have probably involved um, certain multi-purpose props, like a long cloth that might have been used in multiple ways as the performers were transitioning, say, from one state or one character to another. So those were actually brought in, um, and you can see there, Zoe's got the, the cloth that she's playing around with. So, so the dance participants were given a cloth and a mask, and then you had the, the pack of textual um, material to work from in terms of you know, the, the content prompt that we're performing. Um, we'd also had someone uh, who himself was trained in classics, um, was a professional musician, set a piece of music about 10 minutes long. And so this was obviously a 
a modern piece of music, but one that was inspired by the artist's engagement with the classical text. So yeah, he'd taken quite a bit of thought to try and um, write some music that he thought might convey the mood of this text. Uh, that was Malcolm Atkins, okay. um, who stayed involved with the project at later stages. So that's what we had to work with across three hours. So we had this kind of introductory briefing session. There was a bit of a warm-up session as well, um, where some where the music that Malcolm had set was played, just so people could get a first kind of listen. Um, and we, that's the point where Helen was calling out some of these choreographic uh, terms that had been translated. So there was emphasis on things like the freeze. So there's a sense that during the performance, you might see these moments where there would be a very clear visual image that might be conveying a certain state or a certain character. So we had a few of these prompts to work with and have a little bit of warm-up time. And generally, there were three or four pairs per session. So we were in at St. Hilda's College, and we kind of split off into different areas. And then we'd be paired off, generally, either one dancer with one classicist or sometimes a pair of classicists, depending on the numbers that we had. And then we had three hours to work with that and come up with something. And then we came together at the end of the day. Um, the dance participants performed what they had come up with as a performance work in progress for everybody. And then we sat around at the end and um, just talked through the process and, and how people had engaged with it, anything that had surprised them about it, any difficulties that they had. Um, we audio recorded those sessions as well. And while the three-hour improv and working sessions were going on, um, basically we were talking, how are we going to capture an embodied sort of workshop? So we had roving cameras um, and one static camera that would move between groups. So we had this kind of decision about, do we want to be there kind of watching and interacting, or do we want to kind of let them get on with it? So we had these various cameras set up that were kind of just running in the background and, and catching some of the... Um, of the improv session that were very well quality. Um, and then we had these audio recorded discussion sessions at the end. So we generated quite a bit of data in this sort of relatively short time and then had to think about what to do with it. <laughs> um, and again, we, we went into it not quite knowing how it would go. So we, I think we just took the approach that, well, let's capture as much as we can from whatever perspective we can and then put it all together and see what we can do with it afterwards. Um, as I said, we debated whether or not, you know, uh, so in some cases that's me watching one of the other pairs and so sometimes I would, we, we kind of split up and move around to the different pairings and sometimes one of us would sit for quite a while and try to observe and take notes and, um, you know, just kind of get a, a feel for how that pair was working. But I don't think any of us sat through the full three hours with one pair, so what we collected was, you know, necessarily partial and from multiple perspectives. And then, particularly with the video data, you know, what to do with it all, how to store it, <laughs> um, became a big issue for us afterwards. Um, so we did, uh, we captured a lot of the, um, the text, some of it was transcribed, um, and we started using in vivo to at least sort of time capture the videos and some of the transcribed audio text to see what we had, um, but to be honest, we generated far more than we could really deal with in the short time that we have, so we still have a lot of the raw data just kind of sitting in the background um, that never really got fully analyzed in a systematic way. So that is something to think about when you're doing embodied methodology, you know, how, much, how much data do you need, how are you going to capture it, and how are you going to be able to manage it at the end, what do we do with all this stuff? 
Um, so I'm going to pause now and actually show you a clip from one of the raw feeds, um, which I'm afraid you get more of me as this is um, my presentation. Um, so I was a guinea pig in the first session. Um, I participated as a dance participant, um, and I intentionally had tried to uh, not find out too much from my classics colleagues about you know what was going to be prompted on the day. So I intentionally took part in the first session of four um, as a participant trying to be as neutral as possible, although obviously had you know, some idea of the, of the background. Um, so this is from the very first session. I was working with someone called Atticus. Um, and I just wanted to give you a, a feel for the, basically how that three-hour session played out. So in the first few minutes, you'll be able to see some of the prompts that we've got. And when we looked across these kind of raw video feeds, um, it looked to us like, generally speaking, all of the pairs spent at least half an hour, if not longer, standing around and chatting at the beginning. So as much as this was you know, embodied methodology about dance and performance, um, we did exactly what you're about to see for the first few minutes here, um, just being quite cerebral and chatting about it, actually. Thank you. 
So just to um, give you a, a feel for the sort of things we're talking about, so the, um, the, the text prompt um, talked about a journey down into the underworld, and it was talking about you know, seeing things like, um, I've forgotten my character, the guy who pushes the boulder up the hill, so it's something that you might be familiar with if you're familiar with ancient mythology. So it was a kind of rapid fire, you know, scanning the scene as you're descending into the underworld um, of all these different characters, and then about halfway through, it picks up with the entrance of the Fury, uh, this mythological character who's, you know, kind of the, the, uh, the, over, over the dominion of this part of the underworld. And so the rest of the narrative is about um, a pair that have been, a husband and wife pair that have been sent into the underworld and they try to escape. And there's uh, language about her drawing snakes, serpents out of her hair and throwing them at them um, and they become captured basically and go mad um, trying to escape the underworld and then the, the last bit of the text um, is very much about the kind of triumph of, of the fury in, in stopping them from escaping. So you've heard some of the references to the particular text. Um, so my partner was very much trying to set the historical context in terms of what the soundscape might have been from what they know uh, from textual references. Um, but what was interesting and what we noted across once we'd seen um, so the rest of the, the other three workshop sessions, I just observed other pairs. So this was the only one that I participated in. Um, but reflecting on it, um, it, it was interesting because you know we kind of assumed that the classicist was going to be there kind of for reference and you know guiding the context of it. But in fact, almost immediately as he did there, you know he, the, the the classicists were making suggestions about oh well that's really important these kind of freeze you know big visual images we need to work those in. So actually it was. Um, a conversation throughout about the material that was emerging. I'm going to take you a little bit further on, so picking up from, uh, so there we were talking about the narrative of the, the serpents being thrown. So I'm just going to pick up a little bit further on when we actually started moving a bit um, and we're working on that section. But as you see, I'm, I'm moving us to 40 minutes in of, of the first half of this, um, and we did stand around just trying to get the concepts of it for quite a while before I started moving. Yeah, they, they, the color, that's what, that's what poison is. So how they talk about poison coming into the 
volume uh, it sort of starts at your feet and, it, and then they talk about poison coming like cold of your body like freeze <laughs> from the ground up in front of you they, they picture it as you becoming gradually paralyzed and then you don't it paralyzes you to your breast um, which is where your thoughts are which is where your thoughts used to be and then you know it all happened on this yeah and and that's Work its way from top and bottom to here. And then you can be because I'm just going to forward us on another 10 minutes later when uh, I had a play with actually trying to. So, worked with that idea for a little while longer and then kind of had a first go with uh, actually trying it with the music and with the mask. Um, and that's what you'll see is the section we were just talking about there, trying to um, convey the fury throwing drawing the serpents out of her hair, throwing it, and then the, the people who were trying to escape going mad. So this is kind of where we got to in the first half of uh, the improv. Sorry, let me move that back a little bit because the snake's already thrown. <laughs> This was the, the transition in the music that we decided to um, tag to the, the last bit of text, which was the fury being triumphant that she poisoned these people trying to escape. It goes on like that for quite a while. In fact, um, you can see me on the video going, how long does that section go on at the end of it? Um, but that was a, you know, a first kind of a rough go. Um, so I just wanted to show you those to give you a, a feel for how it kind of um, played out in trying to do a more embodied methodology and then across the day and across the session so here's a, a few of our um, other furies at the end of the workshop sessions and 
looking back on it, we're thinking, you know, well, what, what have we done here? Because as an anthropologist, I can't call this field work. You know, these were constructed workshops. You know, we very much you know, gave them prompts and instructions and just wanted to see what would happen. Um, and so, you know, it's not something that we could very well sort of relate to wider social processes. But at the same time, some of the interesting stuff that, that came out of the particular discussions at the end, after everyone watched each other's works in progress and then sat around talking about it um, at the end, um, some of the assumptions that people made about the past and how like or unlike we in the present day might be to people in the fifth century or people in another cultural setting, um, actually those brought out, I think, some of the more interesting threads that we potentially could follow. And so it was this kind of tension that came out again of, you know, we did what we considered a very participatory embodied methodology, but the, the things that probably would have been the easiest to use in terms of research results um, probably would have been the talking at the end of it when people were actually asked to reflect back on it. Um, so some of the, um, you know, some of the issues then that we were dealing with at the end of it, um, these were just a few of the themes that we highlighted towards the end of these, uh, the, the first round of workshops. So we noted that um, there was this connection potentially between the action signs of the performance and the linguistic signs. Um, and there is a good amount of work that's come out of um, both linguistics but also anthropologists of dance who've talked about somasiology and action signs that potentially could be drawn on to try and think about meaning making both in terms of verbal language and also uh, action signs. Um, we noted the fact that you know, the works in progress were very much co-constructions uh, between the classicist and the dance partners, so where we kind of assumed that the dancer would kind of just get on with it and maybe ask for clarification every now and then from the classicist. Um, the classicists had very much an embodied engagement with the whole <laughs> process, even though we weren't sort of thinking about them in that way to start with. Um, we talked a lot about, you know, what do we do about the fact that the action signs are so ambiguous? You know, how do we describe what we've done? How do we capture it? Is the best way to present these data um, as the raw audio or video files because they potentially are harder to interpret, so what do we do with that? Um, and then, as I say, the discussion kind of opened up some wider conversations about the relevance for um, this kind of embodied work for thinking about bodies of the past. So, you know, we were trying to bring to life um, a mythological being, the Fury, um, which would have been taken very seriously in its own context and its time, but it's not something we would take seriously as part of our reality today. So we talked about, you know, how much can we feel like we're really accessing bodies of the past when the context and what we would take, you know, as the lived reality of the world for us would be quite different. So some interesting conversations came out around that. Um, and just very broadly, where we got to at the end of the project was that um, we did feel that some other form of knowledge was being generated in the actual doing or attempted doing or representation of this ancient dance form um, in comparison to what was already known about it from a purely classics perspective, i.e. the textual representations, the artistic representations, etc. Um, and then from that, we thought, well, from the social sciences, we can bring an embodiment framework as a theoretical lens and thinking about that you know, we are not only trying to you know, access our ideas of what the past might be and what these past bodies might have experienced, um, but we are ourselves doing culture. We are making meaning, we are making new culture in the doing of 
of this kind of methodology. So trying to think about how that general embodiment framework could be applied to creating new knowledge as it emerges through these kinds of methods. So as I say, where I wanted to leave you was just to let you know that we did that project, give you a feel for it, and think about um, you know, to what extent is some kind of embodied engagement a route into thinking about other bodies more generally. So can we think about embodied methodology for engaging, maybe not you know, with bodies of the past in this instance, but bodies in different settings, bodies of different size, bodies who experience different ways of eating and moving in the world. Um, so that's kind of the question, is, if, is this experimental classic stroke anthropology project um, relevant for thinking about ways that you might try to go about uh, different ways of approaches, averaging obesity and eating disorders. So I think I'll stop talking there and hand back over to Kareem and see if that has prompted any, any ideas. Thank you.